this week, so, so uh, as we've kind of talked about over these past few weeks, our, the senior pastor here, Donnie, is on uh, taking a little break, a well-deserved break, and I believe right now he's in the UK still. So he, they went over to Iceland, and now they're over in the UK. They'll be back next week. And, uh, and during this period where, uh, where Donnie's kind of taking a break, the teaching team has been filling in each week, and it's been a treat to hear from uh, various people on the teaching team. And this week, we get to hear from uh, Derek Smith. Derek, I met Derek the uh, first time about six months ago at one of the men's Bible studies here. I showed up uh, late, as I usually do, and came in and saw this... this this uh, individual sitting there, and, and uh, um, I was it, within a few minutes of the Bible study. I was really blessed by uh, some of his observations, and I've gotten to know him over the, the last six months. Derek has a kind of an interesting history. He, uh, his parents were missionaries in the Philippines, and so he was born in the Philippines, lived there until he was 18, then he moved back to Spokane. He's been in ministry in various forms for a lot of years. He was an associate pastor. He's been a youth pastor. He's done lots of different things. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited to hear from Derek. Would you give him a warm welcome this morning? We're going to continue our, our series in the uh, book of James. Thanks, Dan. All right. Good morning. This is kind of fun. This is the first time I've been able to speak here at this church, and it's been the first time in a while that I've been able to speak, so it took a little bit of uh, getting back into it for me. Um, but I'm pretty excited, because I think I've got some, some things that God laid pretty heavy on my heart to share, and I'm hoping that it connects home. But before we do that, I just wanted to say uh, thank you to Dan for just saying a little bit about who I am, because it's often very awkward to come up and just start talking about yourself. It's a really weird thing to do in front of people. And um, I've met a lot of you, but not everybody in this room have I met. And some of those that I've met have been just real briefly with not a whole lot of, of relationship built yet. Um, so thank you, Dan, for, for breaking that ice for me and not, making it not quite so awkward. But uh, yeah, I was, I'm an MK, a missionary kid. My parents served in the Philippines for about 25 years, and I was born there uh, and moved back to the States when I was 18. And I came back and went to Moody, which, fun note, I actually took a class with Donnie way back in the day. I think we only actually had one class together, but uh, we did actually have a class together. So that was the first time I met him. Um, and then uh, during that same period of time, I also worked for the Union Gospel Mission, where uh, I, on my first day, I was introduced to a young man named Matt, who I was taking over for, who was leaving to go continue uh, his, his ministry of worship in a church called Life Roads. So I also happen to know Matt from a long time ago. So it's been fun to come back to this church and kind of rebuild some of those relationships and friendships and remember some days that have been gone for quite a few years. Um, if you haven't already met, most of you have probably met my wife. More of you have probably met your, my wife than you've met me. My wife is Cassie, and she was playing the piano this morning. Um, and I have four kids that are running around here somewhere. I was going to say you've probably tripped over them, but honestly, the older two are a little too big for you to trip over. So if someone's knocked you down, that was probably my oldest son. He has a tendency to do that. Um, and as Dan mentioned also, we, me personally, I've been involved in ministry almost since the day that I was born. Uh, I mean, my parents were missionaries. Every time we walked out the door, we were in some form of ministry. Uh, and that continued through 
our, our married life as well. My wife and I have been involved in lots of different ministries, lots of different things over the years, and we've taken kind of a little bit of time off recently and just sat back and asked the Lord where we're going from here and what's next and what, uh, what life looks like for us, focused on parenting. And a lot of you guys know that as you go through parenting, you hit these stages in, in that parenting journey where things get a whole lot harder and you get caught by surprise by certain things. Your kid's growing older and hitting a stage that you thought you still had a little bit longer before you got to that point. Yeah, that, that happened to us for sure the last couple of years. So there's been a lot of that, just asking the Lord, hey, what, how do we do this thing? How do we take care of these little humans who sometimes we don't even understand, let alone know how to teach um, so this is kind of a, a, an exciting thing for me to be able to come back and, and share God's word, because I do actually love this. Um, this is one of my favorite things to do, is, is to, to share God's word. Uh, I really, really do enjoy it, and it's been a long time since I've been able to. But anyway, let's see. Let's, I guess let's start right into it then. I want to start with a lesson that I've been personally learning. We're going to go into James chapter 5, and we're going to hit, uh, it's verse 13 through 18, I believe, that we're going to do this morning. Uh, But before we get into that, there is this lesson that I've been having a hard time learning over the last couple years, and I think it it blends so well into James. It's, It's not something that James really harps on a lot. He mentions it a couple times, and we'll get into that. But it's not something he really hits heavy. And yet, I think it's this underlying value that we have to have for even just our Christian walk, let alone understanding what James is talking about. Uh, And you guys have heard all the other pastors speaking the last few weeks about James and how it's this idea of practical faith, of how we live out our faith, how we act as believers in a world that doesn't believe. And I think this is one of the keys. And that key is this idea of humility. I say humility, and some of you, because I know a lot of other people have, including myself, had this misconception of what humility means. A lot of times we look at humility as being, we look at other people as more important than ourselves. Or we're constantly putting other people in a higher position than ourselves. Uh, The Japanese culture is a great example of this. If you guys are familiar with the Japanese culture at all, humility is very much a part of how they act and how they, the things that they do are trying to show humility and honor to the people around them and raise people around them up. And I don't actually have anything wrong with that. I, I think there's, in some ways, that can be really good, putting other people's values first. But I think it's missing a huge key to what humility actually is for those of us who are Christians. And I want to start with a a C.S. Lewis quote. Oh, I forgot to mention, I do think we have this one on a slide. I use a lot of scripture when I preach, so I thought I'd take it easy on the tech team, and I do not have all the scripture up there. We just have James up there. So I will try, if you guys want to flip with me to the different verses, I'll try and give you enough time to get there. If not, don't worry, I'll read them out loud and you can follow with me. Um, But I I ran across this quote from C.S. Lewis a few years ago, and it very much changed my perspective on who I was in my relationship with the Lord. So I'm going to read it real quick. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this. uh, It's in his book, The Weight of Glory, and it's from one of his speeches that he gave. And he said, apparently what I had mistaken for humility 
all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, and a creature before its creator. And this struck me because I I think that I was like Lewis, and probably a lot of us in this room too, where humility had a very different idea to me. You know, it, it had this idea of, I'm putting myself as less. I'm the one that's kneeling down. I'm becoming less in order that God or others could become more. And that's not the case. That's actually kind of a skewed perspective of what humility is. The idea is that God created us. He created you. He took a very specific amount of effort to make you happen. And to put ourselves lower or to say that we're any less important than we should be actually cheapens the work that God does in who we are. So I want to challenge you. We're going to get into some, chap- some verses here that kind of back this up and explain it. But I want you to take this idea for a moment and just sit with it during the whole time that I'm speaking. Is this idea that we are a created being. We are the created standing before our creator, who is both so far above us that we have no hope of ever matching him in any way, right? I don't think any of us would claim that, that we could match God. He's so far above us that that we are obviously the created being, the inferior being. But, actually I shouldn't say but, and, and on top of that, he still chose us. He still created us, he loves us, and he has given us value. And to ignore any of those things cheapens what God has done in creating you and making you who you are today. So let's go, let's start with James. We, uh, let's jump to James chapter 4, verse 10. We already talked about this, we've, we've already heard a sermon on this, but I want to bring this to light because it talks about James and it... Uh, it brings out this idea of humility. And James chapter 4, verse 10, simply says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Some of you might be like myself and all of a sudden the hymn's going through your mind. I won't sing it because my voice is terrible this morning. It's always terrible. But that's every time I hear this verse, I keep hearing the hymn go through my mind. Humble thyself before the Lord and he will lift you up. First Peter Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 through 7. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. So I want to challenge you with this idea before we get into the end of James is that humility is actually understanding that he is our creator, that we are the created beings, that he chose us, that he loves us, and that he has given us value. When we do that, when we, when we take that time to 
put ourselves in that place of understanding we are God's created and he is our creator, we begin to see things. We draw closer to him. We have a better relationship with him. We're able to see things the way that he sees us. And when we take the time to see things the way that he sees, we begin to look around at the people around us and we begin to realize they're created too. They're loved too. They were chosen too. And they are also given value. And I think that's where humility comes from. That's where the idea of serving each other comes from is not that I am less of a created being than you are or vice versa. It's that I am a created being who also gets to love the other created beings that God gave value to, that God chose. And it's out of that desire that we serve each other. Like I said, this is something that I have really been working on the last couple years of trying to absorb into my life and figure out how, wrap my mind around it. Because it is very different than what a lot of our culture teaches. It's very different than a lot of times what you hear in church, unfortunately. But I think, I think I'm right in this area. I think I'm right on. We are the created and God is our creator and we get to stand before him and see others as he sees them. So with that in mind, let's take that and let's jump into this last part of James because I think this idea of humility is absolutely key to understanding a lot of James, but especially this last passage. Because this last passage talks about prayer. It talks about prayer for healing. It talks about prayer for a lot of different things. It talks about our relationship with those in our body of believers as well. And I think humility is absolutely essential to where we're going with that. So let's jump to James chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 13. I'm just going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll kind of skip back to the first verse. So James chapter 5, verse 13 says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Okay, so let's jump back to verse 13. Verse 13 says, Is, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. I thought this was kind of an interesting way for James to start off because he's, he's basically covering the bases. He's saying, are you having a rough time? Pray. You having an easy time? Pray. Are you having a good time? Pray. That's pretty standard. I think, I think he's uh, basically just telling us it doesn't really matter what is going on. Prayer is part of who we are as human beings. As I was thinking of this, I, my wife and I have been doing a bunch of different things. Uh, if, you're if you're familiar with it, my wife is an Enneagram coach, which deals with personality and relationships. Um, we've also been involved in some counseling recently and different things like that. And one of the things I've realized and I've learned about all of us, 
uh, including myself, is that for me to have a relationship with someone, there has to be two-way communication. And we usually use that to say, you got to shut your mouth and listen, too. But there's also the flip side to that is, if you always listen and don't ever talk, there's not, still not two-way communication. Uh, one, of my, one of my best friends, he, uh, he has this phrase that he used. I think he came up with it because he was teaching an adult special needs Bible class. But he would always say that the Bible is God's way of talking to us and prayer is our way of talking to God. And I think that's what James is saying here. He's basically saying, you can't have a relationship with the Lord unless you talk to him. It's important to listen too, but you've got to talk to him as well. Not because God needs to hear what we have to say. God already knows what's going on, right? So he doesn't necessarily need to hear what we have to say. He may enjoy it. He doesn't need it. We do, though. We do. We need it. We need to be able to talk to God, to process our thoughts, and to have a relationship with him. And I think that's where James is going with this, is this idea of prayer is important for us. It's important for us in order for us to have a relationship with the Lord. So let's jump to verse 14. I guess we're not jumping. We're just moving to the next one. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So I want to pause there for just a second. Has anyone, has any of you ever been in a service or an organization, not an organization, but a gathering where they anoint somebody with oil? Because I can actually remember the first time that that happened. I was probably 11 or 12, and I thought it was the weirdest, oddest thing that I had ever experienced. And I wondered why anyone would want to have oil on their skin. It just seemed weird and odd. And it, was, it actually kind of bothered me. I was like, what, what is the point of this? This seems silly. But there's actually an incredible, what's the word that I'm looking for? An incredible process of understanding in all of this. And I want to dive into that a little bit. And the first part of it, before we get to the oil portion, is this idea of elders. It says, call the elders. Elders being, we, we, won't, we can do a whole Bible study on what elders in the Bible look like. But for this purpose, we'll just say, Elders are the fellow believers who have proven themselves to be worthy, godly, and righteous men, which is true. And why why is this important? Why is this important that we call these people in our, our body of believers around us who have proven themselves to be godly men? Why does that matter? Matthew 18, 19 through 20 uh, is a passage that we often use. And it, I'll be honest, often gets misused as well. But we're going to use it today because I do think it fits, it fits with this. So Matthew 18, verse 19 through 20 says, Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Now Matthew 18, the, the previous version of this, is talking about church discipline which is not what we're talking about today. But I do think that this applies, is this idea that when two or three of us that love the Lord, that follow the Lord, that seek the Lord, 
gather together, there is something that happens that lends us authority and lends us power. And I think that's what James is kind of trying to tap into here, is this idea of believers gathering together. So what is it exactly that happens? Because as I'm thinking about this, I go, you know, we know the Lord hears our prayers, right? We know that when we pray, he will hear us. So what does it matter if there's 10 of us? It's not like our prayers are going to be 10 times louder. It's not like 10 of our prayers are all of a sudden going to force the Lord to do something he wasn't already going to do. So what does it matter if we gather together? So this is, this is what I found. It matters that we gather together again, just like praying is not actually for the Lord. He enjoys it, but he doesn't need it. It's for us. In the same way, this gathering together is for us. It doesn't make God hear us any better, but when we draw together as a body of believers, we encourage each other, we push each other, we, we find ways to build each other up. And at times, we find things that need to be corrected too. Sometimes we need to correct each other in what we, our beliefs are or the directions that we're going in our life. So we need each other in these Hebrews 10, 23 through 26 talks about stirring one another up to love and good deeds. And it goes on to say, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as, sharpen, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So it's important that we gather together when we pray. It makes a difference because we encourage each other. We build each other up. And we'll continue on that thought in a moment because we get into it a little bit further as we get further into this portion of James. Um, but I want to jump back to this idea of the oil, the anointing with oil, because I still find that a very odd tradition. And I didn't have enough time to go really deep into it because we can do all sorts of study in the Old Testament on what oil means and all these different things. But really quickly, some of the things that I think really makes a difference in this is, one, it was a sign of wealth. Throughout the Old Testament, you see oil as a sign of wealth. Uh, later, we'll, we'll look at the story of Elijah. And at, some, at one point, Elijah helps the widow out with this oil. The, uh, she tells her to start pouring from her little oil jar into these bigger jars and that, that God won't let the oil run out until the drought is over. And he doesn't. And they fill oil jars. And that is how this lady is able to provide for herself and her son. And that, that is very much how the Old Testament world would have worked. Oil would have been a, a sign of wealth. It would have been something that uh, only the wealthy could really afford to stockpile large amounts of olive oil. It seems kind of silly. I work at Trader Joe's. We have an entire shelf full of olive oil. And some of you might think that's a sign of wealth because some of it's kind of expensive. But you walk in there, there's a lot of olive oil. It doesn't seem like that's really going to be that rare of a commodity. But in the Bible times, it was very significant. It was a, very much a part of their culture and it was very much a sign of wealth. And on top of that, they used it for a ton of practical things, not only, you know, lighting lamps and things like that, but it was also used in medicinal purposes. A lot of times they would blend their medicine, their herbs with the olive oil to make it more 
potent, more effective. It was used for cleaning. They did that a lot. They used it as a cleansing agent, which seems a little weird. It was actually an ingredient in soap for them. And then finally, we can see a whole bunch of times in the Old Testament, it was used for this idea of consecration, for anointing, for setting someone aside for a job that God had called them to. I think these are all really important in this verse. I think that James used this idea of anointing them with oil very intentionally in this process. He says, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And I think this is important because I think it hits every one of these these things that we were talking about. It's a symbol that we are valuable. We are a sign of wealth to the Lord. We are valuable to the Lord. It was used for medicine in in the idea of healing, of God healing us, of cleaning, and of consecration for the Lord, which God did in our lives. So I think that's a very important part, as weird and odd of a thing as that may sound, which it still sounds odd to me. (laughs) I still don't want oil on my forehead. It's oily enough as it is. But I think it has a lot of value, and I didn't want to just skip over that. I wanted you guys to see that picture and understand that there's depth in what he's saying. The next verse, chapter, or verse 15 says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. This is actually a tough verse for me. There's a lot of different parts in it that, that bring up a lot of questions and a lot of struggles. And I want to start with this idea Uh, Let's see, where is it? Right at the very beginning. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. I think that's a big key to this verse is this idea of faith. Faith is meaningless without something to have faith in, right? We don't have faith in God because he's this interesting, weird idea that's out there that we have no basis of that we have no proof of, right? We have faith in the Lord because we have proof that he exists, that he is there. Let me try putting this in a little bit different idea. I think it was Donnie that used this. We've talked about the, the whole concept of faith and the chair example, right? We, we trust in the chair because it looks solid, because we know that it has withstood many, many people sitting on it. Chance is evidence of that today. We have faith in the chair when we sit down because of the trust we have in it, right? So the faith that we have is based on what has happened in the past. Now, what if I stand up here and say, I have faith that this chair is going to dance? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? There's no trust in that. There's no, there's no proof. There's no evidence. The chair has never danced. It has, though, supported people when they sat down on it. So it makes sense to have faith, even though we don't know, even though there's still a chance that it could break and I could end up on my tail. We have faith in the chair because of what it's done repeatedly over and over and over again. We don't have faith in it that it's going to dance. We have faith in it that it's going to hold us up when we sit down in it. 
and I think this is true of the Lord too. A lot of times I have heard many prayers that people make and claim that faith is their basis for making these prayers, but they are prayers that don't match what God has always done. And I think that's important. Faith is not just this random idea that God is going to do what we ask if we pray for it hard and long enough. Having faith in the Lord is trusting that he has done this over and over and over and over again since day one. And so we have faith in that. We will act on that because he has proven himself to be worthy in those things. And we hope that he will continue to do those things and be trustworthy. So I want you guys to take a moment and think about this in the context context of prayer and switch your idea of when we talk about praying in faith that we're not talking about something that we want to happen or think should happen. But change this to looking at what the Lord has already done over and over and over again and praying for him to continue doing that in that situation. When we stand as creator, as created before our creator, when we remember that he chose us, loved us, and gave us value, we draw closer to him. And in that process of drawing closer to him, we see others as he sees them. And when that happens, our desires and our hopes begin to align with God's. And we are able to look back and go, God, you did this over and over and over again. And so I trust you and have faith that you will continue that plan. We can ask for those things that are in keeping with who he already is. Things that he already does. Things that are godly, good, and righteous. Because what he does is godly good, and righteous. Let's flip to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. I actually really like this verse, by the way. I think it is a fantastic verse. And again, this is another one where we could spend hours and hours just talking about this verse. We won't do that. Don't worry. Like Kyle and I do have a... Uh, a propensity to go long, and I'm really trying hard not to do that today. <laughs> so if it seems like I'm rushing through certain things, I might be, just because I, I don't want to go crazy long. All right, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. I think this is really important. When we pray in faith, we're praying for God to do what he has always done. And when we pray for God to do what he has always done, which is to bring glory to his name and to care for those who love him, He'll continue to do it. He'll answer that prayer. 
think that's, that's the amazing thing about our God is he never changes. He's the, the same today as he was yesterday, as he will be tomorrow, as he will be in the future. He's not the one that changes. We're the ones that change. And so we're the ones that have to bring ourselves back into alignment with, what, with who he is and what he is desiring to do. So this brings up a question that is actually really difficult to answer. And this was probably my biggest struggle with this. And, and to some extent, still is. I know what I believe, but sometimes in real life it can be really hard. Why does God heal some and not others then? That verse says, um, you know, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. What, is, what does that mean? Because I definitely know people that I have prayed very hard for, and I thought, I thought for sure this was what God desired, and they weren't healed. Uh, a few years ago, um, one of my best friends, he was the pastor of our, our last church, he had an absolutely massive heart attack and was actually clinically, medically dead in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. For some unexplained reason, the, the EMTs kept trying to resuscitate him long after they were supposed to have stopped. And in what I can only believe is a God miracle, he not only did his heart start beating again, but a lot of his body function came back. He was in a coma for, I can't remember exactly, at least a week, maybe a couple of weeks uh, in the hospital. And the doctors were saying, you know, he'll never come out of a coma. And in the long shot that he actually does come out of a coma, he'll be unable to, to speak, to have any cognitive ability whatsoever. He's basically just going to lay there and stare at the ceiling. A few weeks later, he answered to his own name and began trying to speak and use words and breathe on his own, use hand gestures and communicate. The doctor said, oh, he'll be extremely limited in his, his mental abilities. Well, all those started coming back too. And the doctor said, oh, he'll, he'll physically be very limited. He won't be able to walk. He won't be able to do these things. He may not even be able to brush his own teeth. Today, he walks, brushes his own teeth, and has fun with his kids and travels. God brought him back about 98% of the way. He actually came back and was able to continue leading our church for a while and preach. He's able to do some physical labor, although he is a little limited. He's able to spend time with his family and do just amazing things. In fact, I'm probably going to go have breakfast with him tomorrow. This is one of those, those stories that for me was incredibly impactful because he's one of my close friends. And I got to see something, God do something that anyone in that process was, is completely unable to deny that it was God. Even the doctors, there's no way that they can go through that and go, yeah, this is what happened. No, it's, it was a God thing. And even they admit it. About a year after my friend Lex was back into his mostly normal life, his older brother passed away. And we spent about as much time praying for his older brother, and God decided not to heal him. Also an incredible man of God. Why does that happen? 
That doesn't make any sense. Why would God do this miraculous thing on one end and not on the other? And we can come up with a pet answer like, you know, God moves in mysterious ways. Yeah, great, that's true, but how does that really help? How does that make me feel any better? How does that make me understand where God's going with this? It doesn't. But I think James here alludes to the closest thing that I've been able to come to with an answer. So if we read that verse again, it says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. When I took a step back and looked at this whole verse, I realized James is making a list here. Healing is just the first thing that he mentions. That's just the first one. The second one is uh, this idea of raising up. And then the third one is the idea of forgiveness. And as I was looking at that, the word, the word raise kind of intrigued me. So I actually looked that one up. And the Greek word, I can't pronounce it, egru, something like that. I can't pronounce it. But the, the original Greek word for the word raise that we translated into raise in English means to heal, to awaken, to bring back to life, to bring to attention. Like when you snap at your kids, hey, attention. That's what it's talking about. Or to rouse spiritually or mentally. The whole, wake up. That's what this word means, to raise. So James talks about healing, which we, we have a pretty good idea of what that looks like. Physical healing in our bodies. Uh, he talks about raising, to, to bring back to a mental and spiritual awareness of what's going on around us. And then the last one is this idea of forgiveness. Let's flip to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. This is a, probably a verse that you've heard many times, but I think it's one that we've got to hear over and over and over again. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I think that's an incredible, powerful statement in just a very short verse. And when we look at this, when we look at all three of these things, when we look at this list and we put ourselves back into that position of being the created, standing before our creator, we remember, like the Psalms say, that he created our inmost being. He knows what's going on inside of us better than we do. He knows what kind of healing we need. And it may not be the physical healing of our body. Maybe it's a spiritual healing or just a sheer mental awakening. Maybe we've been asleep and not paying attention to what's going on around. And God's saying, wake up. feel like that's been a theme in a couple of uh, Donnie's messages recently too. This idea of wake up. Maybe it's forgiveness that's the issue because that's a form of healing too. So let's think about this. That the answer to that question, I think, is that God does answer the prayer for healing, but he knows better what kind of healing we need 
than we do. And so he's going to do what he knows is good for us because we love him and we believe in him. All right, James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The idea of confessing to each other is an uncomfortable one. (laughs) I don't know if you guys have ever been in that position where you have to go and you have to admit to somebody that you screwed up or admit that something you did was wrong or hurtful. That's a very uncomfortable place to be in. The story that comes to my mind that I uh, struggled with is a few years ago, I was working in retail, and uh, a manager of mine, younger guy, about the same age as I was at the time, he was, he was a really nice guy. We got along great. We had a good relationship. But there was this one day that he was doing a training that I was involved in, and I don't know what was wrong with me that day, but I was struggling. I was irritated. I was annoyed. Uh, probably a lot of pride involved. Probably some other things. Who knows? I don't even remember at this point in time. But I just remember giving him a really hard time on some absolutely ridiculous things. I kept challenging him on things that he was definitely way more experienced than I was. Why? I don't know. I don't know why I did it. I still don't remember. But I remember that feeling of after that training going, oh, man, I just, I treated him awful when it it dawned on me what I was doing and that none of it was his fault. It was pretty rough. And this was one time in my life where I think God worked pretty strongly and pushed me to go back up to his office afterwards and go, hey, look, Chewy, I'm sorry. I don't know what was going on. I don't know why I gave you such a hard time, but you didn't deserve that. And I'm sorry. It's not how I see our relationship going or our friendship. And I think God very much brought that opportunity along in my life because it really did change my view of taking that time to apologize and to admit wrong and to humble myself before somebody because it it actually built our relationship back stronger. It helped him to feel like I actually really did value him as a friend and as a boss. And it helped me go, oh man, okay. I I don't have to be this perfect put together person all the time. I I can mess up and when I do, I can go make it right. I can go say, I'm sorry, this was awful. I should not have done this. So that's the, that's the story for me that kind of comes to mind. And as we get into this, uh, in verse 16, it says, therefore confess your sins. My Bible uh, translates that as sins. But again, if you guys haven't noticed, I actually really like studying the Bible in as many of the original languages as I can. But the word for sin in this situation is, again, I cannot pronounce it. I'm, I'm going to have to learn how to actually pronounce Greek. Paraptoma? I think is how you pronounce it. But it's a Greek word that doesn't actually mean what we normally would think of as sin. It includes that idea of sin, but it also includes things like a slip-up or a fault, a transgression, a mistake. 
So James is actually kind of expanding this. This isn't just breaking the Ten Commandments. This is any time we don't treat somebody the way that we should, whether by mistake or intention. It could be a total accident. We could be completely unintentional in what we're doing, and yet it causes hurt or pain or causes wrong to happen to somebody else. This is what he's talking about, confessing. Therefore, confess your faults to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. James talks a lot about faults. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but all of James is just full of all of these things that we do wrong as people and as believers too. So I'm sure you remember chapter 1 and 3 talks a lot about the tongue and saying things that we shouldn't say and not having enough control over that. Chapter 2 talks about favoritism, about not living out our faith. Chapter 4 is fighting, coveting, slander, boasting, arrogance. Chapter 5 is, is uh, greed and swearing. And I'm sure I missed some in there. James is kind of nailing this in pretty hard, right? We're talking about practical faith again. So these things that we don't do well enough in our life. He's talking about all these things. But in this verse, I think a lot of us are used to to taking those things that we do wrong and confessing them before the Lord. I think that's something we we learn to do and we, we have to process to do and we strive to do is to confess them before the Lord. But James is taking this a step further and he says, no, not just confess to the Lord, but confess to each other and pray for each other. And I think that's really important. Confession to each other is a huge part of healing. It's a huge part of our healing process. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22 and 24 is kind of an interesting verse that, again, another one that I would love to spend more time on. But chapter 5, verse 22 and 24. Where did that go in my Bible? There it is. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. I'm in danger of the fire of hell, in case you were curious. Especially when we're driving. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So Matthew is talking about, he's talking about someone going to the altar, going to the Lord to confess their sins and offer payment for their sins, which is what they would have done in the Bible times, in the Old Testament times. They would have offered a sacrifice at the temple to cover their sins. And Matthew's saying, wait, 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 before you do that, before you offer this confession to God, you need to go talk to your brother first. I think that's a really interesting statement that I'm still still trying to process and figure out all of what that means. But I think it means this, that God knows how important it is for us to fix our relationships with each other. 
and that through that process of fixing our relationships with each other, he is able to heal us. He's able to take that a step further and fix who we are inside and begin that process of growth for us. The end of that verse talks about, again, about praying together. It talks about, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And remember, we talked about this earlier. Praying together doesn't make our prayers 10 times louder. It just means that we are, in a group, we are able to encourage each other, to build each other up, to correct each other when necessary. And because of that, our prayers can align closer to what, what, with what God has always done. I have this quote here from uh, Matthew Henry, who wrote actually a really good commentary on the Bible, and I like to reference it from time to time. Um, it's one of the more popular ones out there, but it's, it's one that's a little easier to read. This sentence is not easier to read. So I was debating over and over again whether to read it, but I think I'm going to today. So those of you who are English teachers or English majors, just plug your ears for most of this and just listen to the last part because it is probably one of the longest run-on sentences I've ever seen. So if you lose me in the process of it, don't worry. Just pay attention to the last little bit. But Matthew Henry says this about this part of James. He says, when a righteous person, a true believer, justified in Christ and by his grace walking before God in holy obedience presents an effectual fervent prayer wrought in his heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, raising holy affections and believing expectations. Here's the part that's important. And so leading earnestly to plead the promises of God at his mercy seat. In other words, what Matthew Henry is saying, this person that we're talking about, this righteous person is pleading, asking for the promises, the things that God has already said he would do, that's what this person is asking for. That's what this person is praying for at the mercy seat. And I like this idea because our prayers are not powerful because God hears us better. They're not powerful because he hears us better. They're not more powerful because there's a group of us and our powers combine to save the earth. If you don't get that, that's an old cartoon. They're more powerful because when we, go, when we group together to pray for others, we are able to see them better as God sees them. And we are asking God to do what he has always done, to work things out for his glory and for the good of those who love him. And I think that's the point. That's the point of this whole passage right here that we're talking about. That's, I think, what James is trying to say. Unfortunately, he throws in this next couple verses that I found really annoying because I felt like, man, that's such a great place to end. Let's stop it right there. And he goes, nope, we're going to throw a couple more verses in here. And on top of that, we're going to talk about Elijah. So verse 17 says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. And uh, I was getting 
fairly close to uh, swearing at God's word here, which is probably a horrible thing to do if you don't like lightning. But I was really frustrated with this passage because James talks about Elijah praying earnestly that it would not rain. If you go back to the part of, of Kings that talks about Elijah, it actually, and the, and the story of Mount Carmel, it actually never says in there that Elijah prayed. It's not in there. And so as I was reading it, I was going, why on earth, James? Why would you throw this example in here? We've got so many other examples of, of people praying and God doing miraculous things in their life. And I had to take a little bit of a step back and read through more of Elijah's life and see what all actually happened. And while the Bible actually, our parts of the Bible never actually state that Elijah prays for this, it does show evidence of how close he was with the Lord. And as we talked before, for us as humans to have a relationship with God, we have to have that two-way communication, both the listening and the praying. So I think, we can, I think we can take it for granted that Elijah prayed. What he prayed for, we don't know. But we can take it for granted that he talked to the Lord and prayed about these things. So why is this in here? What, what, is this, what does this have to do with anything? Well, if you remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, remember he, we talked about the widow with the oil. God sent this drought uh, king Hayab was the king of Israel at the time, who did awful things in the sight of the Lord. So he send, God sends Elijah and says, there's not going to be any more rain for a long time. And so Elijah goes and tells this to the king and, and ends up being with this widow for a little while and living with this widow for a while during this drought. And then God comes to him again and says, okay, it's time to do something about this. We're going to move, move on from here. I'm going to start doing something. And so Elijah says, okay. And they end up gathering uh, what's left of the believers in Israel, which are very, very few at the time, on Mount Carmel, along with Ahab and uh, the priests of Baal. And they build the altars. I'm sure you guys have heard this story, so I'm going through it fast, but they, they build the altars and they ask Baal to, to light the altar, the sacrifice to Baal. And of course, it doesn't happen, right? So Elijah has everybody else build the altar to the Lord and, and they put the sacrifice on it and they soak it in water. And as Elijah is praying to the Lord and asking him for him to show his glory, God doesn't just light the altar on fire. He consumes it. It's gone. And as soon as that happens, the people fall down on their face and go, the Lord is God. And then shortly after that, the rain is returned. And I think that's why James added this in, is because he's showing us what the verse before says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James threw this, this story of Elijah in there at the very end, as annoying as it might seem, to show us what the prayer, a powerful and effective prayer looks like. When we are able to pray with others, when we are able to pray in alignment with what God is already doing, God not only answers us, he doesn't just light the altar on fire, 
He consumes it. He answers it in such a way that people who are watching, who are with us, cannot ignore the fact that he has moved and acted. They are unable to stand there without acknowledging that he is God. Like my friend who is healed, so many people who walked along that journey were unable to to ignore the fact that God had done something miraculous. That's what a powerful and effective prayer looks like. How am I doing on time? Eh. All right. So I want to leave you guys with a conclusion. And for me, anyway, this is the conclusion. You guys can take the parts of it that apply to you or you feel like God has spoken to you. But for me, the portion that I have learned from the last couple years of my life and from studying this passage is this, that I am created, that you are created, that we stand before our creator. And we need to remember that he chose us, he loves us, and he has given us value. And when we do that, we see others as created, who God has chosen, who God loves, and who God has given value. And that when we pray, Let your prayers ask God to do what he has already done, which is to love us, to care for us, to heal us, to forgive us, and to lift us up. So those are the things I've learned from this. Let's just end in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for just who you are, God. You know all the things that have gone on in our lives this week. You know that, you know, my life has been a little rough, a little bumpy this week. And God, you are always faithful. You always come through and you always give us the strength that we need to continue doing what you've asked us to do, Lord. You give us the people around us to build each other up. You give us the strength to keep going. And Lord, we just thank you for who you are and ask that you would just continue to love us and be the God who supports us, who lifts us up, who gives us forgiveness, who heals not just our bodies, but our hearts and our minds as well, Lord. I thank you for who you are. In your name, amen.